0: Now, please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's word. We will be reading the entire chapter of Exodus 32 in the English Standard Version. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, and offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it. And said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hands, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor." And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord, and alas, and said, alas this people has sinned a great sin they have made for themselves gods of gold but now if you will forgive their sin but if not please blot me out of your book that you have written but the lord said to moses whoever has sinned against me i will blot out of my book but now go lead the people to the place about which i have spoken to you behold my angel behold my angel shall go before you nevertheless in the day when i visit i will visit nevertheless in the day when i visit i will visit their sin upon them Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made.
1: May be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Caleb, I'm the pastor of student ministries here at Providence, and it is a joy to open God's word with you this morning. Uh, Before we dive in, though, would you, uh, just real quick, would you pray with me? Father, we confess that the words of Jesus are true, that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so this morning, we ask that you would nourish us, that you would feed us, that you would strengthen us and grow us. Father, we do ask that you would be among us this morning. Be at work, Father. Would you use me for this time of ministry? Would you take these feeble words and infuse them with your power? We ask this for your glory and yours alone. In the name of Jesus, amen. You know, it's popularly believed that fish do not have a good memory. Uh, within three seconds, fish seem to forget everything they know. Now, unfortunately, science has disproven this, but, but hear me out. Uh, there seems to be a lot of empirical evidence for this popular fact, such as the method we use to catch them. I mean, you can picture it, right? There's a couple of fish swimming around Lake Erie. Let's, let's name them Dave and Phil. So Dave and Phil are swimming around Lake Erie beneath the surface of the water, you know, talking about the rising water temperatures when all of a sudden a worm just plops right in front of them. And, and Phil thinks to himself, oh, hey, a worm. I like worms. I should eat that. But before he can, Dave swims up having a similar thought takes a big bite and is instantly yanked from the water. Phil, of course, is freaking out at this point. Oh no, oh, what happened to Dave? Oh, oh, oh hey, look a worm. I like worms, I should eat that. Anyone that has gone fishing knows that fish do not have a good memory. What is also obvious is that oftentimes we make decisions like we have the brain of a fish. Uh, Take the nation of Israel in our text, for example. They had just signed a covenant with God in Exodus 24. They had declared in verse 7 that all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. This included but was not limited to having no other gods before him and not creating any carved images or idols. Then, just a few days later in our text... They have erected an idol in the shape of a calf, and they are calling it their God. But this isn't fish brain; This is something else entirely. Uh, This morning, our text confronts us with the sin of idolatry, which can seem irrelevant to the modern reader. After all, we aren't so naive as to bow down to little golden guys who are guarded by booby traps and boulders. And yet the problem in our text is far more widespread uh, than we think. And so from our text this morning, I want us to see three things. I want us to see the shape of idolatry, the severity of idolatry, and the salvation from idolatry. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, "'These are your gods, O Israel, "'who brought you up out of the land of Egypt.'" Now, there does seem to be a a pretty big leap in their logic, right? Uh, Things are not going as they expected. Moses is taking a little longer than they think he should on the mountain. And so they instantly think to themselves, hey, Moses hasn't returned yet. We need a God right now. Aaron, you make us one. But their, their logic d- does actually make a lot of sense. See, the Israelites and really every ancient civilization acknowledged what we tend to ignore. That there is a, a gap between our desire and our ability to bring that desire about. So like, an ancient example, t- take, take a guy who wants to have a male child to, to keep the family line going. There's a pretty big gap between what he wants and his ability to guarantee that it will happen. And so he would have sought some way to close the gap. And this is where the gods come in. See, the gods were the ones who can guarantee that your desires became a reality. And each god offered uh, something a little different. Uh, If you wanted a bumper crop, there was a god for that. Uh, If you wanted to have victory over your enemies, there was a god for that. If you wanted to live long and prosper, there was a God for that too. And, and, and so this guy who once a son would come and beseech the God of fertility or manhood or whatever other God he thought would guarantee that his desire became a reality. But did you notice I put offer in quotation marks? That's because the gods tended to be stingy. They uh, they didn't help everyone, and lots of people would have been after the same thing that this guy wants. And so he he needs some way to set himself apart, to somehow gain the god's attention. And, and this is where the idol comes in. An idol was like uh, the hot spot for a god's presence. You had the best chance of getting reception and attention if you were before the idol. And so you would come to the idol, you would pray and sing, pour out wine, offer up sacrifices, whatever else you needed to do to persuade the God to, to give you what you wanted. And so the gods really functioned like piñatas uh, they have the stuff that you, you want, uh, that you need. And in order to get them, you have to, to go through the correct rituals, you have to show the correct amount of loyalty, you have to put in the work until you finally crack open that clenched fist and get the goodies that they are holding onto. And when you take this system of idolatry and you hold it up to what Israel is doing in these verses, it, it, it makes sense. They want strength to be protected from their enemies, and they want prosperity for when they arrive in the promised land. But there is, of course, a gap between their desire and their ability to bring it about. And so they craft an idol in the form of a calf, which was the symbol for prosperity and strength in the ancient world. And they worship it. Do you see what they're doing? They're, they're trying to crack open the divine piñata... <laughs> by their actions. See, they think that they have found a way to make their desires a reality. And that's what an idol is. An idol is anything that we believe will bring an unpredictable part of our life under our control. Which means that anything can become an idol. Uh, Let me give you a few examples. Let's say that you have a great desire people's approval. You're desperate for it, but of course there's no way to actually guarantee that you'll get it. And so uh, maybe you, you look to your children and say, you know, if you act perfectly, if, if you are smart and well-behaved, if, if I work tirelessly to raise you right and you become the envy of everyone else, then you will give me approval. Then everyone will think I'm an excellent parent. Or perhaps your desire is success. Perhaps you are desperate not just to keep up with the Joneses, but to be the Joneses. And so you work insane hours, and you say to your job, if I put in more time than anyone else, if I, if I give you my children, my family, and to better serve you, then you will give me the success I crave. Or maybe you look around the world and you realize it is crazy out there. You know, you got Russia, you got financial collapse and everything, and you would just like to feel safe at night. And so you look to your 401k, or you look to your political party, and you say, if I keep you well supplied, if I do all I can to wholeheartedly support you, then you will make my world safe. Do you see the point Anything can become an idol. You can take any good thing and deify it. You can ask it to supply for you significance, security, and success, and and when you believe that you have found this thing that will bring an unpredictable part of your life under your control, that is your God, and you will cling to it. And that's the shape of idolatry. And our text tells us that it is a severe thing that we and they have done. It's so severe in fact that the levites strap swords to their sides and they start hacking down their countrymen and later God brings a, a plague on the nation. And let's be honest that's that's hard to swallow. And is idolatry really that bad? Yes. Yes it is. See three times in our text Moses refers to it as a great sin. In fact, Martin Luther says that it is so great that no one ever breaks any other command of God without first breaking this one of having a God before the Lord. And our text explains for us why this foundational sin is so severe. While Moses and God are having their meeting on Mount Sinai, God interrupts it to inform Moses what has happened. And he says to to him, starting in verse 9, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. Idolatry is severe because it places us under the wrath of God. Now, of course, there is this misconception that God is this vengeful deity, He is just waiting for you to mess up so that He can squash you like a bug. But but that's not the case here. God's wrath is actually a result of his just nature. God's anger flares up when injustice is done. And that's actually a really good thing. None of us would actually want a God in control of the universe who isn't about to deal with evil and injustice. And the fact that, that God is ready to wipe out the Israelites tells us that this is a big deal, What exactly is so wrong with idolatry? Well, Moses actually demonstrates that for us in verse 19. There it says that as soon as Moses came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. Now, doesn't this kind of sound like something from like a romantic comedy? Right, where like the girlfriend finds out the guy's been cheating on her, and in like a blind rage, she takes his TV and chucks it out the apartment window, and it like crashes to the ground and shatters in a million pieces. It kind of seems like Moses is just angry and he's looking for a way to express that, so he breaks the first thing that he sees, which happens to be these tablets. But there's actually something more going on in our text, and it, and it we're clued in by that because of how the text speaks about these tablets. Did you notice how the narrative like grinds to a halt to describe these tablets? Look at verses 15 and 16 to see what I'm talking about. We're told that Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, front and back they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. See, these, these tablets were the legal agreement between God and the nation of Israel. On them, you would find all the terms of the contract. And in Moses' time, if the covenant was broken or, or invalidated, you were to take the, the legal record of it, the tablet, and you smash it on the ground to show to everyone that it is no longer binding, that the deal is off. And that is exactly what Moses does. But even though Moses broke the tablets, it was the nation that broke the covenant. And it's worth asking ourselves, why? I mean, they had a really good thing going with the Lord. Uh, Look at all he's done for them in the book of Exodus alone. Deliverance and and provision, for starters. Why would they tear up that contract? It's because they believe they found a better offer. (laughs) in their minds, the golden calf was a more surefire option to get the things they wanted. And so they replaced God, and in so doing, they invited his wrath. And Moses warned them that this would happen. Uh, In in Deuteronomy 6, 14 through 15, he, he tells them, "'You shall not go after other gods, "'the gods of the people who are around you, "'for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God.'" lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Now, perhaps you are thinking to yourself, wait a second, idolatry is so severe because God got jealous? That's kind of petty, isn't it? So so God didn't get picked, and so he's taking his ball, and he's going home. No, a a much better metaphor would be a spouse who's being cheated on. See, they would be jealous for their spouse's affection, but Uh, Not because they weren't picked, but because they should have been picked, right? They were the ones who should have received all the love and commitment that the unfaithful spouse had to offer. This is actually how idolatry got started. Uh, If we go back to the beginning, when God created all things and declared them to be very good, he blessed Adam and Eve. He gave them everything they could possibly need. But then one day a serpent shows up. And he asked them, so why did God tell you that you couldn't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? And instantly there was this subtle gap. Hmm, perhaps we are missing out on something. Perhaps perhaps God can't be trusted to provide all that we need. And so they make a choice. They should take matters into their own hands. They would eat of the fruit. They would become like God and therefore satisfy their needs themselves. See, idolatry is really rebellion against the cosmic king, the one who has given us everything and who should have all our loyalty. And Do you know what they call it whenever you are indebted to a ruler, to a country, and you are disloyal to it? They call it treason. And last time I checked, treason is a pretty serious offense, punishable by death. The idolatry is severe because it is cosmic treason. And it is clear from our text that like the Israelites, we all are doomed under it unless something is done but salvation from idolatry is not an easy thing to bring about because we actually need to be saved on two fronts. We need to be saved from God's wrath because of our idolatry, but then we need to be saved from the root of our idolatry. Uh, Thankfully, God hints at the solution while Moses was still up on the mountain with him. After God informs Moses about what the Israelites have done, he says to him in verse 10, now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. And this sounds like it's a, it's a demand to us. that God is telling Moses to get out of my way so I can do what I need to do. But I think about it. This is God we're talking about. It's not like Moses is going to be able to hold him back if he tried. And so, this statement is not a demand, it's actually an invitation. God is informing Moses that this is what's about to happen unless Moses does something. And Psalm 106, which rehearses the history of Israel, vividly explains to us what Moses does with this invitation. I'm reading from Psalm 106, starting in verse 19. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them? Moses steps in the gap between God and the people. But we just said that he couldn't hold God back, so how could he possibly turn away God's wrath? Well, you see that at the end of our passage, starting in verse 30. The next day, Moses says to the people, "'You have sinned a great sin, "'and now I will go up to the Lord. "'Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin.'" So Moses returned to the Lord and he said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. See, Moses turns away God's wrath by trying to atone for the people's sins. He, he offers himself in their place to bear the weight of his wrath that should have been for them. And God relents. He, he doesn't destroy them then and there. So Moses saves them from the bulk of God's wrath, due them by their idolatry. But even though Moses utterly destroys the golden calf, he is unable to save them from the root of their idolatry because it always goes deeper. Uh, Before I I met Em, I I dated this girl for a semester who had uh, gotten out of a rather toxic relationship. Uh, Her her boyfriend was, um, treated her poorly. Um, It was just not a good situation. So when we started dating, uh, she cut off all interaction with him, and she would tell me again and again how much better I treated her compared to him. Summer break rolled around, she broke up with me, and I came to find out later the reason she had done that was to get back with Mr. Toxic. And it it didn't matter that I had treated her better. The reality was her heart, her affections were still attached to him. And so she would always go back to him. And that's the root of the problem. See, it's not enough to know that idolatry is wrong or, or, or to cut yourself off from your idol because you haven't dealt with the root problem yet. You haven't dealt with your affections. You still believe deep down somewhere that that this thing will provide for you. And so you will always run back to it. See, to be saved from idolatry, you need a new and greater affection for your heart to latch onto. Something has to come in and expel the idols from your heart. And this is where Jesus comes in. See, Jesus became like you and I, yet loved the Lord with all of his heart and soul, mind, and strength. And yet rather than step aside and watch humanity burn under God's wrath, he steps in and offers himself in our place. Like Moses before him, Jesus steps in the breach between us and God. On the cross, he turns away God's wrath and turns it onto himself. He experienced the full force of God's righteous fury. He bore all the punishment that you and I deserved for our idolatry. On the cross, he saved us from the punishment of idolatry. But here's the amazing thing. In so doing he also dealt with the root of the problem. See, every idol makes the same basic promise that they care about you, that, that they can provide for you, that they want what's best for you. But I guarantee you that no idol has or ever will die for you. But Jesus didn't. Jesus went to the greatest lengths imaginable for your good. He demonstrated his great love for you in this, that while you were still sinners, while you were still in cosmic rebellion against him, he died for you. Jesus is the salvation from our idols. He is the new and greater affection that breaks the hold our idols have on our hearts. And so the question we need to ask this morning is, where do we go from here? Because the reality is we are a perpetual factory of idols. Even those of us who have accepted Jesus as Savior and King are warned to keep ourselves from idols. It's a constant struggle. And so in light of who Jesus is and what he has done, how are we to respond to the idols that will crop up in our lives? Two things. First, we need to repent. We need to confess to the Lord that we are taking good things and trying to turn them into ultimate things. We need to confess how weak and ineffective they are to bring about flourishing in our lives. We, we need to confess how destructive they are to us and those around us. And we need to confess how grievous they are to the Lord. It's how we turn away from our idols. But to truly be free... We must put something in their place. We must turn to something. And we do this by rejoicing in Jesus. We reflect on God's goodness and provision that we see in our lives and ultimately in Jesus. We we worship Him for it. We praise Him for it. We treasure Him because of it. And in so doing, our hearts are turned to the one who is worthy of our affections. Brothers and sisters, We are prone to wander. Can't you feel it? We are prone to leave the God we love for God's substitutes. But there is hope. There is hope when we turn our eyes upon Jesus, when we look full in his wondrous gaze. Then all these things, they grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come before you and we thank you that there is no God like you. Father, we praise you and thank you for the fact that every good and perfect gift comes down from you. Everything that we experience is a gift from you. Father, we also confess that we are quick to attribute that to other things, that we exchange the glory of the immortal God for created things like sticks and stones, jobs and cars, spouses and kids. Forgive us, Father. Uh, Forgive us. And please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to see with new eyes Jesus on the cross for us, turning aside your wrath, turning it onto himself for us. May we be utterly convinced of your goodness, your love, and provision for us. May that stir our hearts, our affections. May they turn to you even now as we sing your praises. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.